Well, I would love to have you uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there are red ones, hopefully somewhere close to the road that you are in, that you can pick up and uh, follow along. I think it'll be really helpful uh, to have uh, a Bible with you and to just have the text open in front of you. If you have a digital uh, copy of the Scriptures, it's great. You can use your phone or whatever and scan the QR code in the bulletin and, uh, and follow along that way too. But uh, we're just going to kind of settle down in this one Scripture, uh, Revelation chapter 2, these couple of verses, and just sort of work through it uh, one verse at a time. Um, we're in this series called Seven Letters, the Seven Letters. And we're going to take eight weeks talking about seven letters that begin the book of Revelation. These are letters written to seven specific churches. And why would we take eight weeks to talk about seven letters? It's because the last week is going to be a letter to us, to Journey Mennonite. And we need your help with it, uh, the people of Journey. We need you uh, to spend some time praying, asking God, listening, to say, God, what do you want to say to us as a church? What is your spirit saying to the church? And so last Sunday, there was an insert like this in the bulletin. If you missed it, you can pick one up at the Connection Center before you go. And please don't just like scribble something down real quick. Well, I think I know what God's saying. Um, take, take a time, take prayer, and make this... Uh, make this a part of just your daily time with God to just sit and listen. Say, God, what are you saying to the church? And then over the next few weeks, we'll have a, a place where you can drop those off and we'll sort of submit them uh, to, to the church and we'll, we'll take a look at them and sort of hopefully come up with something on the eighth Sunday that will be a, a listening of what is God saying to journey. So I would love to have you help and participate in that. Seven letters. Today we're talking about the church of Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. And because, uh, again, it's, um, it's summer and last week was a holiday week, Dale Kaufman did a phenomenal job opening up the series, but I'm guessing some of us missed it. And so I'd like to just, before we get to the actual letter we're going to be talking about today, I want to just give some, some on-ramps, because the book of Revelation can be super intimidating. Um, it can be, it can be a, a bit cumbersome to try to figure out what in the world is God trying to say through this. Martin Luther, do you guys know Martin Luther? Uh, not like you know him, like you had coffee with him yesterday. Uh, but Martin Luther, not uh, Martin Luther King, but the reformer Martin Luther, who lived in the 16th century, um, he said the book of Revelation shouldn't be in the Bible. Shouldn't be in the Bible. It, uh, it, there's nothing of Christ revealed in the book of Revelation. You can't find any evidence of Jesus anywhere. That's what Martin Luther said. John Calvin, uh, a contemporary of Martin Luther, 16th century, he wrote a commentary on every single book in the Bible except one. Anybody know which book he did not write a commentary on? It's Revelation. So there is this kind of like long history with the church of saying, we're not quite sure what to do with it. Uh, it's in our Bibles. It is, you know, the early church said this is Scripture. It is inspired by God. And yet, we've struggled to know how to interpret it. It's been used, the book of Revelation has, and I would say abused in some really, really destructive ways. Um, one of the 
guides that I want to just sort of put out in front of you to say, I highly, highly recommend this book, this person as a resource. If you're interested in diving into Revelation, there's this great resource called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. And in my opinion, this is like a starting point to say, not that the Spirit can't speak to you as you read it, but sometimes it's helpful to have a, a tour guide that just says, just pay attention to some of these things. Here's what you're dealing with when you're holding the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a genre, a type of scripture we're not used to. It's called apocalyptic genre. Now, the book Revelation is actually titled in Greek, Apocalypsos. Everyone want to say Apocalypsos. Now, what English word do we get when we hear the word apocalypsos? What English word do we get from that? Apocalypse. And what comes to your mind when you hear the word apocalypse? What was it? Zombies, is that what you said? Okay, zombies, yes. Something like this, right? Um, Destruction, doom, gloom, the end of the world as we know it. That's what apocalypse means, right? Wrong. The word apocalypse has nothing to do with that. The word apocalypse, apocalypsos, it literally means, what's the title of the book? Revelation. It's a revelation. Apocalypse means that something is being revealed. Something is being, a curtain is being pulled back. Um, That is what apocalypse means. It is not our Hollywood sort of filtered version of, we are obsessed as a people with the end of the world. Uh, if you were going to just like go on Netflix this afternoon and say like how many movies have been made or IMDB or whatever and say like how many movies have been made about the apocalypse? I mean, you couldn't watch them all in the next month, right? Um, and these are just the ones in the last like 10 years because we just like, we're obsessed with the end of the world and that's not what apocalypse is. The word apocalypse literally means revelation. Something is being revealed. There is a curtain being pulled back. Now, why is this important? Why is there a curtain being pulled back for these first century Christians? These these Christians who were living in these seven cities that we're learning about. The next slide shows a little map that I think Dale showed last week. Seven letters to seven churches living in what was then Asia Minor. It's today modern-day Turkey. And so there are these seven churches. Uh, Today we're talking about number two, Smyrna. But... You, like, let's say you're in Smyrna. You're in one of these churches, and you are a disciple of Jesus. You have made your confession. You have been baptized into the faith, and you have said, Jesus is Lord. That was the confession of the early church. Jesus is Lord. What was the problem with that confession? Was that somebody already was claimed to be Lord, and that was Caesar. Now, the Roman Empire, um, at this point in history, stretched from Spain all the way to Palestine. It's huge, massive amounts of power. And the one who was leading the Roman Empire was Caesar. Now, for a long time, Caesar was just the dude who ruled the empire. He was just a governor, a king. But all of a sudden, what started to happen, you can leave the map up, David. Uh, What started to happen in places like Asia Minor, where these seven churches were, they started to actually deify the emperor. They started to say, Caesar is not only king, he is God. He's a son of the gods. And so this cult of the emperor started to develop in places like Asia Minor. So let's say you're a disciple of Jesus. You've said, Jesus is Lord. 
But everybody around you in the marketplace, everybody in your community, your neighbors, they say Caesar is Lord. And they look at you because you refuse to say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is, and they call you an atheist. That's what first these Christians were called. They were called atheists because they didn't believe in God, so the Romans said, because God was Caesar. So now imagine you're in one of these churches and you know John. John has been a disciple of Jesus. John was a pastor of the early church. And John, you hear, has been exiled to the island of Patmos. This, John, um, he was sent to Patmos to die. He was, a, he was a political prisoner. Why? Because he said Jesus is Lord and he was pastoring churches. And John, your beloved pastor, who's been sent to the Isle of Patmos, a little bit like Alcatraz, right? It's sort of secluded. Once you go there, you do not come back. And so he, he's going to die there. And he knows that he's going to die there. And you are experiencing all sorts of persecution and suffering because of your belief in Jesus. Now, if you were going to sort of take score, if this was like where you were, your context, and you were going to take score, who's winning, the Roman Empire or the Church of Jesus Christ? Who would you say is winning? Who has the power? Yeah. It, we know that's true, right? We know the church does, but it feels very much like Rome has all the cards. So that's where John is. He's exiled. He's a political prisoner. He's on the Isle of Patmos. And what starts to happen is he gets a revelation from Jesus. It's not John's revelation. It is a revelation from Jesus to John. And it pulls the curtain back. It pulls the curtain of reality back. This is how you see the world. It looks like Caesar's in charge. It looks like he has all the power. It looks like um, the whole world is under his domination. But let me pull the curtain back and let me show you ultimate reality. And when you see behind the curtain of ultimate reality, do you know who's on the throne? It's the lamb who was slain, who is victorious. It is Jesus who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is this Jesus who was born of a virgin Mary, who lived a faithful life, who suffered, was crucified, died, went down into Hades, was resurrected on the third day, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who has put all authority in heaven and on earth under his feet. Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Revelation is about. Michael Gorman, this is what he says, Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It is about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. When we pull the curtain back and we see ultimate reality, it's like all of the, sort of, the, we, we have these concerns about what's happening in our world today, and we, um, you know, like nuclear weapons and what's happening with Korea and and all sorts of stuff that can just sort of, it looks like the world is in chaos. And sometimes we need a glimpse behind the curtain that says Jesus is on the throne. He's a king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He's not going anywhere. And that's who our allegiance is to. We have pledged our allegiance to him and to him alone. So this is what Revelation is all about. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say to this church, Smyrna, the persecuted church. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. This is what Jesus says. "I, I know your afflictions, your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, 
but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, the one, excuse me, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So let's just sort of unpack this a little bit. There are, there are four, four components of this letter we want to pull out. There are images of the risen Christ. There are affirmations for the church, critiques of the church, and promises made to the church. So let's just sort of unpack this a little bit. First of all, there are images of the risen Christ. This is why we read, um, this is why we read Revelation, it's why we read the scriptures, because Christ is revealed and we want to know this one who we've given our lives to. And so Christ is revealed <clears throat> here in these first few ver- uh, words as the one who is the first and the last. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Another place, Revelation 1.8 says he is the alpha and the omega. The, the beginning and the end. The one who was and is and is to come. Do you know, there, uh, there's this old um, hymn. It's almost a doxology or a, a benediction sometimes of the church. And it's ancient. It's been passed down from generation to generation of disciples of Jesus. And it goes like this. Maybe you know it. Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Hallelujah. So there's this this beautiful truth in that. It says, um, there is something that is, is not shakable in this world. There is something that is going to endure. What, whatever chaos we feel like is happening on the surface of our lives and of this world. And that is the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I have uh, a morning <clears throat> sort of track of prayer that has been really helpful for me. Um, and, and like to have like a, a prayer, a, a track of prayer that has spaces of just openness, but also has like these, these words, uh, some, many of them are scripture, but some of them are just prayers of God's people, um, is really helpful. Like for me, like what this does is like we, we plant, we have a garden, we really enjoy gardening. Um, and so we have tomatoes. I like salsa. Um, God's gift to humanity is salsa. And so like we plant these tomatoes and we put cages around them. And these cages, what they do is they give the tomato structure to grow. Well, we have one tomato that just sort of, it was a volunteer and it just sort of sprung up and we didn't catch it in time. So it's now it's too squirrely to put a cage around it. And so what's going to happen, this tomato plant is, is probably going to grow. It's going to bear some fruit. But I would almost guarantee it's not going to bear as much fruit as the ones that are structured, right? That have like a trellis to grow on. And that's what like, that's what these tracks of prayer do for us is is in my own life, it it helps us sort of experience structured growth that it helps us to be formed in the way of Jesus and fruitful. And this is one of the prayers that I pray almost every morning. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Do you know what this does for me? And maybe it does it for you. Is it gives me this sense that I am anchored in the eternal. Like you are anchored in the eternal one. The unshakable one. If, if you are baptized into Christ, you are in 
Christ. Like, that's how the New Testament talks about salvation. Yes, Christ is in you, but more often the New Testament says you are in Christ in this amazing sort of mysterious way. You are in Christ. And that means you are anchored, you are connected to the eternal, unshakable one, to the one who was there and spoke the first morning of creation into existence, and to the one who will be there long after the last star has given its last ray of light. You are anchored in that one. You know what that does for you? What it does for us? Is it gives us this, it just sort of washes over us with this sense of security and peace. Like, your life might feel vulnerable. You might feel at risk. You might feel in danger. And to be able to come back, to pull the curtain back and to say, no, 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 reality is I am anchored in the first and the last. That's who my hope and my faith is. Are in. It gives us a sense of peace and security that I'm not vulnerable at all. You're not vulnerable at all. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean our bodies aren't going to betray us or break down. It doesn't mean we might not be in an accident or, you know, bad things won't happen. It doesn't mean that stuff. But it means ultimately we're not vulnerable at all. We are as secure as we could possibly be because of who Jesus is. He is the first and the last. These are his words. We are anchored in the eternal. Uh, He also says he is the one who died and came to life again. That's how Jesus reveals himself. I'm the eternal one, first and last, and the one who died and came to life again. Um, Jesus is kind of like saying, been there, done that. What's the worst that can happen to you? It's happened to me. That's what Jesus says. Um, I was betrayed, I was abandoned, I was persecuted, I was slandered, um, I was accused, I uh, suffered physically in my body, I suffered emotionally, and I took it all, and I was executed, I was killed, and I went down into death, I've experienced death in Hades, and I rose victorious on the third day. Jesus says there is nothing in your experience that is going to surprise him. There is nothing that is going to be outside of his ability to walk with you through and to give you comfort in. This is who Jesus is. He is the eternal one. He is the one who died and rose again. And Jesus, what he does, what he does in his death and resurrection is it's not just like sort of, yes, he died one time and he he rose again, but resurrection is what God does, is he takes all of the things that cause us pain, and he can process them into something that, that actually makes us grow and something that's beautiful and good. He takes suffering and he brings salvation out of it. This is God at work. This is what God does. So this is the images of the risen Christ. Now there are these affirmations for the church in Smyrna. He says, I know your afflictions, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, Yet you are rich. You're rich beyond your wildest imaginations, even though you are poor. Uh, I know the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are really a synagogue of Satan. Um, So let's stop. First two words there in verse 9 says, I know, I know your afflictions. I know your suffering. I know your poverty. What does it mean that Jesus knows your suffering? Um, I had a friends of mine who traveled on this like traveling ministry team and they went to Minnesota. I'll be in Minnesota next week for school. Uh, I'll be in Minnesota. And um, they go to this traveling ministry um, 
they go to Minnesota and they're helping this youth group and they're doing some like street ministry and the leader of the group like just in this thick Minnesotan accent says, you tell these kids, God knows your peeing. God knows your peeing. Like, why would we tell anybody that God knows your peeing? Um, like, no, 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 God knows your pain. Ah, yes. So, um, what does it mean that God knows your pain? What does it mean that God knows your suffering? Like, on one hand, it can just mean, like, God's aware of it. He, he knows. He's aware that you're in pain. But I don't think it means that. I think it means that God knows it. He knows it because he's in you and with you, and you are in Christ. I think that when Jesus looks at us and says, I know your afflictions, I know your suffering, I know your pain, it's a, it's a personal, firsthand knowledge that he is experiencing it with you. That God actually comes to us in our suffering and he, he, he comforts us. And to pull back the curtain of reality that says, I, I feel like I'm all alone, I feel like I'm the only one who knows what I'm going through, whatever sort of pain that may be in your life. And to hear the words of Jesus say, I know your suffering, I know your pain, I know your affliction, and I am with you in it. The eternal one, the one who came to life from the dead is with you and knows you. Jesus um, says he knows the slander that's happening to these Christians because they're being persecuted by those who are loyal to the empire. Um, they're being persecuted, they're being slandered by other religious people. How many of you know religious people like to slander each other? Right? Unfortunately, that's the, it is a dark underbelly of religion, is that there's all sorts of slander and accusation. And Jesus says, like, um, yeah, these people, they say they're faithful, and they, they say they're Jews, but they're not. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. Well, Jesus, that's not very nice. Whoever said Jesus was nice. Um, he, he sort of reveals this truth. Who is Satan? Satan is the accuser. And so what are these people doing? They're accusing these Christians. They're blaming them. They're leveling slander and accusation at them. And he says, you are actually, these people, they claim to be Jews, but they are actually participating with Satan, with the accuser. And, uh, and so this is, not, this is not like an indictment against the Jews. It's not condemnation of the Jews. In fact, at this point in history, the Jews and Christians were not separated they were actually Jews and Christians were meeting together often, worshiping together. And so, uh, in fact, Jesus was a Jew and the first Christians, it was a Jewish renewal movement. But eventually, the two movements sort of split apart. So this is not like a condemnation of, of Jews as a whole. In fact, Jesus says, like, they say they're Jews, they say they're faithful, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. So, um, some affirmations. There are no critiques in this letter. Uh, none. None. This is the only letter of all the seven that have no critiques. It's totally positive, and maybe it's because they were persecuted so harshly. But Jesus makes these promises. He says this. He says, Now the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Uh, most of the time, numbers in the book of Revelation being kind of apocalyptic literature, um, scripture, it, it, numbers are symbolic more than literal, so it probably isn't a literal ten days you'll be put in prison. It, it means, most likely, it's a limited amount of time. Your suffering, your persecution is going to be limited. It's not going to last forever. And sometimes that's a helpful thing to know, that it, it's, not, it's not going to last forever. But Satan will put some of you in prison and you will suffer. You'll suffer. Um, this rem <clears throat> reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter. And it's right before the crucifixion in Luke 22. He says, uh, Simon, he sort of warns him. He says, Satan 
has desired to sift you like wheat. To sift you like wheat. How many of you harvested? How many of you sifted your wheat? You separate the wheat from the chaff, whatever. Satan has desired to combine you. I mean, to, to, to sort of punish you. To test you. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, But I have prayed for you that your faith will hold, and when you are restored, you have work to do. Encourage your brothers. Um, you have an enemy of your soul. Like, you, you have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. This is, this is a reality. This is, um, this is truth. This is not, like, some fairy tale. This is not, um, you know, something, something that we need to, to sort of grow past as a church. There is a reality that, that Satan is a real force for destruction in our lives and in our world. And, and so we need to be aware. We need to have eyes to see that every day we are tempted to sort of take these small steps, never big steps, never giant leaps, but these small steps away from faithfulness to Jesus and, and into areas of sin. And here's the thing about sin. Sin is really fun. If it wasn't fun, it wouldn't be tempting. Sin is really fun until it isn't. Right? I mean, we've been there, haven't we? It's really fun until all of a sudden it's not. And then we realize something inside my soul is dying. And I've been disconnected from my source of life. And this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. And Jesus says there is this enemy who, who's going to persecute you from outside. He's going to try to take you off of, um, away from the life found in Jesus but the suffering is limited. Then Jesus says these words. He says, be faithful. Like, remain faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be faithful even to the point of death. If that death is premature at the hands of others, as many Christians around the world are experiencing today, right, who are suffering persecution, even if that death is premature at the hands of others or if that death is just a, a death of, of old age or of some sickness, just be faithful until the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, if we were sitting in first century Smyrna and I said, hey, do you have a coin in your pocket? You said, sure. And you pulled out a coin. Whose image and whose inscription would be on the coin? Anybody know? Caesar. Absolutely. So on one side of the coin would be a picture of Caesar wearing a crown. Um, looks something like... There it is. Um, <clears throat> this is a diadem. The kind of crown is called a diadem. It was made of, of gold or some precious metal. It had jewels. And the diadem, this crown, was a crown of royalty. It was only worn by those who ruled, who um, had power uh, to rule governments. You flip the coin over, and whose picture and whose inscription is on the other side? Caesar's. It was, really wasn't a trick question. The dude was that vain, uh, um, right? Uh, so not only does he rule, but now he's wearing a different crown. This is a victor's crown. This is a Stephanos, not a diadem. And it is a crown made of greenery. It's like shrubbery on his head. Um, and this was a crown that was given to Olympic champions. So you won a race. You, like, uh, you worked hard. You were faithful in your training. You, you, know, you denied yourself certain things so that you could train your body. And you won this race. You were given a Stephanos, a victor's crown crown. Caesar, what's he telling you every time you pull a coin out of your pocket? He's saying, I rule over you. I've got the power. I'm the one who holds all the authority, and I'm faster than you too. 
I'm like, I can jump higher than you. I'm better than you in every way. I mean, there's a sense of just complete domination. And you know what Jesus says? When you pull the curtain back and you take a glimpse at ultimate reality, Caesar's not wearing the crown. Jesus is wearing the crown. There's only one in all the universe who is worthy of wearing the royal diadem, and that is Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal one who came through death and was raised again and sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning here and now. And Jesus says, if you're faithful to me, like if you, if you are faithful to me, I will give you life as your victor's crown. There is this call because Jesus is faithful, because he, has, um, because he has, has been faithful, because he has all authority, because he has all power in heaven and on earth, he invites us to share in his victory through faithful living. Uh, I want to end with just a quick story from a guy named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna. Um, and so this city, Polycarp was a disciple of John, and he, um, he was persecuted toward the end of his life for being a disciple of Jesus. And so one of his um, sort of contemporaries was killed. And Polycarp was on the run, uh, which he was in his late 80s, so he wasn't running very quickly. But he eluded, sorry for those of you who are in your 80s, um, he eluded the authorities somehow for uh, a short time but then was betrayed, and they came to apprehend him. So he's in, a, in somebody's home, and they come, and they find that he's there, and he's like, he's like a wanted criminal. Why? Because he's an atheist. He refuses to acknowledge Caesar as God. So they find this, this old man, gentle, meek, and the people who have come to arrest him are like really surprised because they think he's going to be like, you know, enemy of the state, Rambo-looking guy or whatever. Um, and he's not. He's just this old, gentle man. And he says to them, he says, hey, could, um, could I have an hour to pray before you take me? And they say, sure. And he, so he has the people who own the home bring them food and drink and has them sit down, and he stands praying. It says that they were just sort of dumbfounded by the grace that was on him. And he ends up praying for two hours. Nobody really says anything. So finally he ends, and they take him sort of, you know, they didn't want to anymore, but they had orders to do it. So they take him, and when they found out that Polycarp was arrested, the whole town sort of goes into chaos. They fill the stadium waiting for his blood to be shed. So he stands before um, the local magistrate who tries to get him to recant, and he says, um, if you will just deny your faith in Jesus, I'll spare your life. And so all you have to do is say, um, down with the atheists, like down with the Christians. And Polycarp, apparently having a sense of humor, he looks at the stadium full of people, he says, down with the atheists. Um, they weren't very amused by that. And uh, they threaten him with lions. He says, I, you know, I'm not really scared of the wild animals. And they threaten him with fire. And he says, I, I'm not really scared of this fire that's going to burn my body temporarily. So I'm not, not afraid of that. And um, I won't go into all the details, but Polycarp was, was a martyr. He was a faithful witness to Jesus to the very end. And his life has sort of stood as this sort of shining example for the church. And many, many faithful Christians have followed in this example, the example of Jesus, of remaining faithful 
even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of suffering, to the very end, and Jesus has promised, I will give you life as your victor's crown. God, we want to be faithful. What that, whatever that looks like for us, God, we want to be faithful to you. God, we ask that, um, that we would just have this glimpse behind the curtain even of our reality today. This glimpse that you are on the throne of all the universe. That you hold power. That your kingdom is coming. God, that you are returning. That you are the first and the last. And God, all others who hold power in this world, nations, presidents, armies, God, all their power will fade eventually. And you will remain. So God, we are your disciples. We confess that you are Lord. Our allegiance is given to you. God, pray that we would hear your words today. Speaking to us, saying, I know. I know your pain. I know afflictions. I know your suffering. And stay faithful. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. God, we receive these words from you today. 